Father, again, we thank you for showing us your truth, that you rescued us from a miry pit. You rescued us from damnation. Father, thank you that as we have had faith in you and in your Son, that you have justified us, that we have a right standing before you, that as we have this right standing, we're becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that, and that someday we look forward to being with you, and that our justification will be complete, and that we will be perfected as we see him as he is. And Lord, again, we thank you for these marvelous truths, and we say again that you are great. Great for saving us, great for sanctifying us, great for someday bringing us to heaven. Lord, remind us of this truth as we study your word, because this passage is very difficult, not necessarily to understand, Lord, but to apply. How do we love our enemies? That is such a very, very difficult task. And yet, because you are great, and because you have done marvelous in our lives, you've given us your spirit, we have his power, we know that we can accomplish what is impossible in our own flesh. Lord, help us not to escape this text. Help us not to rationalize it away. Help us not to run from the people that have frustrated and hurt us. But help us to deal with them as you say in your word. That we would love our enemies even. That we would not be overcome by evil, but we would overcome evil with good. So Lord, help us to see how this applies to our own personal lives and the relationships that we have with others, especially those that are hard relationships. Lord, give us the grace, give us the understanding and the conviction, as well as the power to accomplish this for your honor and glory. Because again, we say you are a great God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to turn to your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, I'm reminded of a story during one of the wars, a military unit hired a local boy to do their cooking and cleaning for them. Off to war, sometimes that happened. Being a bunch of jokesters, the soldiers quickly took advantage of the boy's seemingly innocence. They smeared Vaseline on the stove handles so that it would get all over his hands. They would put buckets of water over the door so when he opened the door, he would, they would, get, he would get soaked. They would nail his shoes to the floor during the night, so when they grabbed him, he couldn't pick them up. Day after day, the young boy took the brunt of their practical jokes. Finally, the day came that the soldiers got convicted, and they felt bad, and they went to him and said, Look, we're not going to do any more jokes on you. We've decided that we're going to not do that, because we know it frustrates you. And the boy smiled and asked, you mean no more sticky on the stove? And the guides would say, nope. No more water on the door? No more water on the door. No more nail shoes to floor? No more nail shoes to floor. And then the boy smiled with a wide grin, and he said, no more spit and soup. <laughs> Anybody, anybody spit in your soup lately? You know, we're looking at a very, very difficult passage here. If you go to Romans 12, verse 14, a couple of weeks ago, I think it's three now, we started looking at what I consider the hardest part of this entire Romans 12, and we've been looking at this for a number of weeks. Let me read this for you, if I could. 
Romans 12.14 Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, and again, underline that, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And then I believe this is what the whole passage is revolving around. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you break it down, just kind of like look at the whole passage, notice that in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says you have to be a living sacrifice. Then he jumps into our responsibilities before the world, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed. That's verse 2. Verses 3 through 8, he really turns his attention to, and this is how you should treat your brother, your fellow Christian. The idea is this, don't be high-minded towards them, be sober towards them in your thinking. How? By serving them. Think of yourself as part of a body, and he goes into the whole body concept Uh, in verses uh, 4 and 5. And then he says, and if you really consider yourself a body, and if you really love your brother, you're going to serve them. You're going to serve them with your spiritual gift, which is 6 through 8. Now, I I want you to see the flow. Be a living sacrifice. Serve your brethren. Is that harder than serving the unsaved? Yes. Excuse me. It's easier to serve your brother. It should be easier to serve someone in the family of God than it is outside in the world. Then he really looks, I think, inwardly, verse 9, and talks about what love really is. Be, let your love be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And he really goes through, these are characteristics of love. But then in verse 14, he turns and he says, okay, we've talked about you being a living sacrifice and your relationship to the body and your relationship of, as far as love and how you should love. Now let me tell you about how you should respond to those who are difficult. Real difficult. And so today's message is, how do you handle difficult people? And he starts out by verse 14 by talking about, bless those who persecute you. That's the verbal. See, that's the part of the passage that talks about the verbal. From there, he's going to go into actions, verses 15 to 21. How do you respond to difficult people? Again, he goes from attitude and talk to actions and walk. That's how the passage, verses 14 to 21 is going to lay out. And it all revolves around this revolutionary idea, as it were, of do not be overcome by evil. As Christians, we can be overcome by evil. The people in our lives can make it, not that they're forcing us to, but because of our response to them, the difficult people in our lives can make it so that we are not walking with God. We're not responding to these people in love. We're not uh, responding to them with a supernatural power. And therefore, as the passage is saying, we're overcome by evil. Not that they're trying to necessarily destroy us, but if we take, if there's revenge and retaliation in our heart and in our relationships, then we're over, being overcome by evil. And so, as, you, as we move to this passage through it, remind, just remember, verse 21 is what we're shooting for. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's, that's the imperative. In fact, there's three imperatives here. The first one is found in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's a, those are imperatives. The other verbs kind of work around that as far as the idea of blessing, not cursing. The second one is found in the end of verse 16. Do not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, think humbly of yourself. Depend on God, because you can't do this without God's help. And then the final one of the two verbs in 21 where it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he's working through this, and I think he's putting in key passages or key verbs to say, listen, if you, if you respond wrongly to people who hurt you, you're being overcome by evil. Now you might say, well, let me give, give me some examples of loving difficult people. You know, I don't have anybody that at the moment is trying to throw stones at me. But, you know, you have difficult people in your life. I would say this. If you're over 18 or 20, you've got to have somebody that's difficult in your life. Right? Probably multiple. The problem with difficult people are that sometimes we run from them. And I'm not saying we're always supposed to hang with all the difficult people in our lives, but sometimes they get frustrated, we get frustrated with them, and we leave the marriage, we leave the family, we leave the church, we leave the business, and we leave whatever it is that's irritating us, and we're running from the possibility of God working through us and growing us with these difficult people. So what are some difficult peoples possibly? Well, it might start out in your own marriage. You know, you remember back and you think how wonderful it was when we first got married and all the, you know, possibilities. And yet, over time and many years and perhaps unresolved conflicts and the frustrations and the hurts and now it's anger and it's growing. And you're looking at each other and you're even saying, I don't even know why I ever married you. And maybe it's even moving to a point where one of the other or yourself is even looking around. See, the difficult person might be your own spouse. It might be a brother. They were such good buds, as it were, when they were growing up. Oh, they had their normal sibling rivalry and everything else. But something was said, something was done, something was not resolved. And there was animosity that started. And as this one illustration that uh, Lutzer gives, this is what he taught. He he says there was uh, two people, two brothers in this one particular church that had not spoken to each other for 20 years because of a petty disagreement. I wonder if there's any of that in here right now. You know, there's someone in your family and because of this frustration, you can name it right now. I mean, when I say frustration and hurt, he goes right back to it. And because of that, you have just kind of walked away from that particular relationship. Aaron Lutzer writes this. In this one church, these two brothers had not spoken to each other for 20 years. They would enter and exit through separate doorways. Finally, one of the men approached the other to ask his forgiveness. The pastor brought the two men of the church together and had the deacons pray with them. They resolved their conflict. Now think about this. After 20 years, they resolved their conflict. The next Sunday, those two men stood, those two brothers stood and sang a song to the entire church, then gave their testimony of what had happened for the last 20 years. And what they said was there was a revival not only in that church, but even adjacent churches. See, sometimes we let things go. And like I said, we just avoid. And if you are avoiding 
let's say even someone in your own family, you need to see that as sin, and you also need to see that as being overcome with evil. Maybe it's a church member who was a true fellow servant of the Lord that caught wind of of someone in the church talking about them. It wasn't malicious, it was just... And they just caught it. And because of that conversation and what they thought, maybe people were talking to them about them behind their back, they get up in a huff and they leave. By the way, I've seen that happen. I don't know what the frustrating situation is. Maybe it's a pastor. None of you are pastors, but actually I dealt with this particular situation this week. Who after four years of faithful and productive ministry in his church was voted out by the church And it all stemmed from just two, I think it was two or three leaders that got frustrated with him, got got the rumor mill going, and he was asked to leave just a few months ago. What do you think is in that person's heart? That's a difficult situation because you're not just talking about friendship, you're talking actual livelihood there. A family of six. Maybe it's you as a parent, and you're the parent of a prodigal son. You had such high hopes for the individual, and yet he did not or she did not adhere to your value system. And he walked away from God and away from the family standards, and it has caused hurts and anger and bitterness. That's a difficult person. That's a very difficult, that's a difficult situation. And how do you love that person when they're off doing their own thing? Maybe it's the friend who has turned against you after many years of friendship. And now, not only has turned against you, but will actually speak and malign again the things of you, your character. Or it's your co-worker or your neighbor who has been out to get you since you showed up on the scene. (laughs) They never liked you. They didn't like your stand for Christ. They didn't like your personality. I don't know what they didn't like about you, but they didn't like you. Or maybe for you kids, it's a school bully. And they're just always bullying you. They don't leave you alone. They just taunt you. They just keep trying to frustrate you. Maybe it's somebody that you had such, again, just, just let's say generic, high expectations for. Again, that can enter in in marriage. It can enter in with children. The word expectation. In other words, I thought it was going to move in this direction and it ended up moving in this direction. And this situation is so very, very difficult. How do you handle difficult people? And again, as we look at this passage, this is is a supernatural passage because our tendency is, yeah, we like to hang with people that like us, that want to be an encouragement to us, that are our friends. It's when we come across a difficult person, now we start backing off. Now we start doing things that are ungodly. And really, going back to Romans 12, we're overcome by evil. We're not loving like we ought to. See, it's easy to, in Romans 12, 9, you know, read the verse, let let your love be without hypocrisy. Don't wear a mask when you love. But sometimes we love those who love us. Sometimes we love those who are lovable. And the, the rest, we just say, oh, forget it. I don't want to even deal with them. So really, this passage, this part of the passage is, is the, I think, the hardest part of Romans 12. It's really defining what does supernatural Christian living look like. 
It's saying, and I would say this, it's impossible without the Spirit of God working through your life. Well, let's just break them down. I'll give you only a few today. We're only going to get up to verse 17, and then we'll finish up the rest next week. By the way, you don't have an outline today. Uh, On Friday afternoon, the uh, ink in the uh, uh, copier went down, um, went out, and Chris grabbed the next cartridge to put it in and found out that in the shipping of it, it exploded. So that was useless, and we had to throw that out, so we didn't have any way to come up with an outline. Well, the first aspect of supernatural living is, number one, which we looked at a few weeks ago, speaking blessing to those who hurt us. Speak a blessing. And again, the emphasis is on the speaking. Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not, excuse me, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The, the word persecute means to pursue. It's those who pursue you, pursue you for a negative outcome. It doesn't mean necessarily those who throw rocks and trying to kill you. That would include those. This would also include people who are just constantly riding you. <laughs> That's how we say it. Always making life difficult. They're looking for me to fail. When I speak, they immediately come to the wrong conclusion, the wrong interpretation. You know, I mean, you have those type of people in your life. It's not that they're trying to kill you. They just don't have your best interest in mind. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not curse them. That same word persecute is found in 1 Corinthians 13 where it says this word, pursue love. The idea is that they're pursuing. In this context, in this verse, it's pursued in the negative. They're trying to bring you down. So again, we need to speak blessing. It is a supernatural act of God to work in a Christian's life to speak blessing to those who do not have my best interest in mind. Let's look at the, as we go on though, in verse 15, the second. Now again, think of who is in your life that's a difficult person. By the way, sometimes the difficult person is not because they have sinned. Sometimes the difficult person is just because they are so needy. They're difficult people too. Throw them in the pot as well. It's not just those who are like antagonistic. It's just sometimes people are very needy. In fact, I think he has this more in... in, um, in view in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So the, the key point is, if the, if the first point, again, I know you don't have an outline, is speak blessing to those who hurt you. That's the first point, verse 14. This one is emphasize, empathize, excuse me, empathize with others. Are you empathetic? Are, are you an empathetic type person as far as as you look at other people? Well, this this really defines it. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Or literally it says, rejoice with the rejoicing ones and weep with the weeping ones. We are invited to participate in the emotions of weeping and rejoicing that other people experience. Actually told to do this. And my first question might be this. Which is more difficult? To weep with those who weep or to rejoice with those who rejoice? What is more difficult? I think sometimes the greater struggle is is to rejoice with those who rejoice. To rejoice with the blessings of others. In other words, if you found out that someone got the promotion 
and you did not get the promotion. Or this other person is having their second child and you don't even have your first. This one was able to pay off their house or maybe got an inheritance and you're just struggling to get by. Is it easy to rejoice at that point? Is it easy to be happy for that person? No, I think it's hard. I think the pride within us says, you know, I want what you have. It's envy. Especially if their promotion was at your expense. <laughs> in other words, there was only one promotion and there was four people in the, in, the, uh, in the position that could get it and you didn't and they did. Could you rejoice with them? So when he says rejoice with those who rejoice, that's not easy. Sometimes, as one man said, we feel wounded by the success of another. Ooh, that's tough. We actually feel the knife go in when they're promoted, when they get the success, when they have the prosperity and we didn't get it. You know, I think we have to recognize if that's going on in our hearts because if that is, what is that? That's envy, that's jealousy, that's the opposite of love. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is what? What? Kind. Love is... I think the next one is love is not envious. One of those four. (laughs) But the point is, is love is not envious. See, true love actually says, you know, I want you to have the best. I want you to have the very best. The story is told of two writers who were very, very jealous of each other, and their animosity was apparent to everyone. One of the writers eventually wrote a book that was a popular and bestseller. When the two of them met at a party, the other man said, I bought your book the other day. It's a good read. Who wrote it? Shaken a bit, the first man nevertheless thanked him for the compliment and then asked, Who read it to you? In uh, Proverbs 17, verse 15, it says, He who is glad at calamity, that's the calamity of another, will not go unpunished. If you're glad at the calamity of another, I, I find at times we almost seem to be glad at the calamity of others. How do you, how do you mean that, John? How would you, well, like when, all right, example. You find out that a Christian leader falls or is dismissed or whatever, and sometimes we pass that information on almost as, hey, did you hear what happened? Versus there should be weeping in our soul, there should be prayer on our, you know, we should be before the Lord. The Lord's name has been disgraced. Their family has been destroyed. And sometimes we almost use it as a little tidbit. Did you hear what happened? He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. It's a convicting thought. To refuse to rejoice, now let's think about the rejoicing with another reveals something in my heart. That's a convicting thought. If I'm not really happy for them... (laughs) In other words, I need to get rid of what's, what's a problem in my heart, whether it's pride or arrogance, whether it's jealousy and envy. No, I need, I need to be such a person that the Lord has put love in my heart that says, I am happy for you when you succeed. Even if you're succeeding means that I, I couldn't. So that's the rejoicing. Very difficult. That's not easy. Let's go to the weeping. It means to shed a tear. 
The idea is this, enter into the suffering of others. That's weep with those who weep. Enter, enter into the suffering of others. If you, if you put it together in just one word, it's compassion. Have compassion. Weep with those who weep. Have compassion. You know, Lamentation says, speaking of God, that he is compassionate. His compassions, what? Never fail. God's compassion never fails. He is a compassionate God. If we want to be like God, we need to be compassionate. Who do you know in your life right now that is really, really, really going through some very, very, very deep waters? Well, I know, and they are. What are you doing about it? See, weep with those who weep means there's a connection to that person. Now, again, we can't connect with everybody, but if God helps you to connect with the people that he puts on your heart, we can get the job done. It's not left up just to the elders. By the way, if you're really going through a deep waters, you may want to say that to someone. Sometimes you go through deep waters and we never even find out about it until you're, you're above, <laughs> above the waves. If the waves are crashing in, you need to say, hey, listen, the waves are crashing in. I need your prayers. I need your friendship. I need your comfort. I need your understanding. I need your counsel. What, what do you need? Maybe you need our money. You know, it talks. It, it speaks of Jesus in eleven John eleven thirty five that it says. You know, the shortest verse in the scripture. Jesus wept. <coughs> the next verse says this. The Jews looked at him and says, talking about how Jesus viewed Lazarus. See how he loved him. He actually wept, knowing all the things. Not only about the fact the death of Lazarus, but the the uh, the hurts that that the uh, his sisters had to go through. So God has compassion. We need to have compassion. Sometimes we don't have compassion. Why? Well, again, because of pride. You're going to see pride and humility a lot in this passage. Pride is the key. Pride creates a judgmental attitude. Pride creates a harshness, uh, an insensitivity of lack of concern. But, but we want to have, you know, weep with those who weep. I'm reminded of a, a story of Mickey Mantle one of the great Yankee baseball players back in the 50s. And, and it happened to be a day where he struck out repeatedly. And so, you know, when he got back to the clubhouse, uh, Mickey was very, very disgruntled with himself, frustrated, irritated. He just kind of sat down on the bench and just put his hands behind, or on his head, you know, like just about ready to cry. I mean, he was just so disturbed about his performance. And a little boy, it happened to be Yoga Berra's son, Tommy, came up to him, just a little guy, and stood right beside Mickey Mantle. And and I'm sure Mickey figured, you know, he's going to try to comfort him. Hey, you're a really great player, but you just had a bad day. You know, some word of encouragement from this little kid who probably is, you know, a really big fan of mine. And the little kid just looked at him, stood there for a moment, and just said this, You stink. I hope you don't do that when I'm having a bad day. (laughs) That's the negative. Let me give you a positive illustration. Story is told about a little boy with a very, very, very compassionate heart. It happens to be that the next door neighbor was an older gentleman and his wife had just died. And when the young boy saw the man crying, 
He went into the man's yard. He climbed up on his lap and just sat there. When his mother asked him what he, what he had had to say to the neighbor, the little boy said this. What did you say to him? What were you doing there? He said this, nothing. I just helped him cry. Isn't that what empathy is totally about right there? Isn't that what weep with those who weep? I just was there to, didn't have to say a word. I wish I had learned that years ago as a pastor because I always thought in these critical situations I had to say something. And sometimes there's nothing you can say. I've watched other men just go up and just hug the person and say probably nothing. But I'm here for you. You know, Job's friend had, had it right at the beginning. When Job went through his first, you know, his trials, the friend showed up, and I think it says they sat with him seven days and didn't say a word. That was the right thing. It was when they started to open their mouth that they had a problem. Now, again, and I'm not, I'm not dissing counsel or any of that. There's a place for it. But make sure you do it the right time and the right thing, right? Corinthians 12 says, So that there should be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, what? All the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with him. That's, that's, that's this passage over in 1 Corinthians 12. If there's suffering, we suffer with you. And if there's rejoicing, we rejoice with you. One commentator wrote, It is distinctively Christian. It is distinctively Christian to rejoice in the blessings of others their honor, their welfare, and to be sensitive to the disappointments and hardships and sorrows of fellow believers. That is distinctively Christian. And then he adds this, no matter what may be our personal circumstance. See, sometimes we rejoice when we're also rejoicing in our own personal lives. It's distinctively Christian to be able to rejoice when our own personal circumstances are not as good as theirs. Again, why? Why is that true? Why is that distinctively Christian? Because as Romans says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. See, the love of God is in our hearts. That's what fellowship is really about, isn't it? Fellowship. Really, saneness, connection, communion, unity. We're going to be enjoying... uh, the uh, communion table next week. But what we're saying there is that we're one with the Lord and one with each other. So we need to share each other's sorrows and joys. In fact, one person said this, a sorrow shared is but half a trouble. Why? Because you're sharing their trouble. It's a half a trouble. And a joy that is shared is joy made double. You have a you weep and you're lifting them up and it's like a half a, half a sorrow, but then you have a, a joy and it should be like double because we're just rejoicing with you. So in your own life, is there anyone you need to rejoice with? Maybe you've been avoiding them just simply because such good things have been happening to them. They need to hear from you. How about this? Is someone crying, really weeping, really struggling, Are you coming along to try to lift that burden? Well, they haven't called me. I would call them. I always say, you know, call me if you need me, but really I need to reach out more. And you do too, right? We're part of the body of Christ. And God expects us to function together as a body. Well, let's look at the third one, verse 16. Seek to live impartially through humility. Seek to live impartially through humility. 
Verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Be of the same mind, or I think the, the NIV says, live in harmony with one another. The, the word same mind means think the same things towards each other. Think like they think, or say it that way. Or as one guy said, let each so enter into the feelings and desires of the other as to be one, one mind with them. Be one with them. So when he says be of the same mind towards each other, he's saying, listen, get into, as it were, not get into their mind, but you're you're understanding them so that you see where they're struggling. Um, If you want to rejoice with someone, I think it's a kickback on, you know, the verse previous, but if you want to rejoice with someone, really, you know, see them where they're at and rejoice with them. And if it's weeping, again, see where they're hurting. I think he's really pointing towards the weeping. So you treat people impartially. That's the, the virtue here is impartiality. Well, what do you mean? In other words, I'm not just going to treat and reach out to my friends. I'm looking at the body and I'm saying, okay, who has needs? You may not even be a real close friend of mine, but who has needs? So we reach out to more. By the way, if you reach out to someone who's not a close friend, <laughs> guess what? You become a close friend, right? There are certain people that have reached out to me and, and, and hard points in my life who have been close friends. They become close friends through that reaching out. So be of the same mind towards one another. Treat each other equally. How? By looking and saying, you all have needs, and, I, and I'm going to be reaching out as God leads me to reach out to you. And you the same. It says this over and over in Scripture, New Testament. Acts 4.32, it, it talks about the believers being of one heart and one mind. That's what like an equality, really understanding each other. 1 Corinthians 1, it says, there was no division, don't have any divisions. How do you do that? Perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. They were thinking together. Romans 15, it says, be like-minded towards one another. Now, he, he gives some destroyers of that in the next part of the verse. Do not set your mind on high things, haughty thoughts, proud thoughts, in other words, don't, don't think high thoughts about yourself. What do you mean? Uh, selfish, it's all about me thoughts. Self-seeking thoughts. The most important person in the whole wild world. Is that how it goes? Could someone end it? Like people are stunned. Yeah, who's the most important person in the whole wild world? Is it me? I hope you don't teach your kids that song. That's pagan. Kill the dinosaur. No. <laughs> the point is, that is high thinking, though. That is high thinking. That I'm the most important person. So therefore, as long as I'm doing okay, well, forget you. You know. No, we don't want to have that thought. If you go to James 2, you show, this is where uh, uh, James is saying, don't be partial in the way you deal with people. Um, he says, my brethren, chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come in, into your assembly a man with a gold ring and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. By the way, it's not just about our clothes, it's about our our needs and about our frustrations. In other words, sometimes people dress okay, but they're just needy. And we just kind of, ooh, you know, I got enough problems of my own. Um, But he's talking specifically about the outward. 
and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit over in a good place and say to the poor, you sit there, sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In fact, just skip down verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. No, as it pertains especially to the body of Christ, you know, we want to be like-minded. We want to be able to say, Lord, help me to understand what so-and-so is really going through. So haughtiness, pride, arrogance, high thinking works against that same mind concept. And he, notice what he says. Uh, not only haughty, but he says to associate with the lowly. The word associate means to be led along. And he says the lowly. So I think he's pointing primarily to the weeping to the ones that are hurting. Those are the lowly. But he says, associate, be led along. It means to be, in other words, let them carry you along. Well, how do you mean that? In other words, when you see the need, you get connected with the need and helping the person and you don't like put on the brakes because it's like, oh man, this is getting too much. I can't deal with all this. I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> I just wanted to say, how are you doing? Now you're telling me your problems and how I can help. No, be led along. Let, let the option, you know, okay, let's be a little flexible. Let's be giving, self-sacrificial. Okay, you really need that? You need somebody to watch your kids? I didn't ask you well, how you're doing for that, but if that's what you need, then I'll do it. See, that's being led along. That's really acting the body concept out. So associate. Let yourself be led along. By the lowly. What are the lowly? One guy said, the flattened, the pummeled. You know someone that's being pummeled by problems, flattened by life? So don't have a high thought. Well, you know, I'm doing okay. No, they're not, and they're part of the body. So we reach out. And then finally, another destroyer of this like-mindedness would be don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't be wise in your own thinking. Again, that high thinking. Wise in your own eyes. Again, our confidence is in the Lord. Our confidence is in the fact that, man, look at what you brought me through. And if, if I really remember that I was the guy in the miry pit, that not only that, but even after salvation, he has been working tremendously in my life. And I go back and remember the times in my life that I was in crises, and God's Spirit, through His power and His people, helped me through it. See, that's not wise in my own eyes. That's saying, you know what, I'm, a, I'm just a fellow struggler. And at this moment, this person needs the help, and maybe next week it's going to be me. Right? So don't, don't have a high estimation. I think that part of that high estimation is also thinking, again, self uh, self-sufficient. I can do it on my own. Man, everything's fine. Everything is just fine in my life. That's having a high estimation. How about a fourth thing? How do you deal with difficult people? Resist repaying a wrong. Resist repaying a wrong. First part of 17, repay no one evil for evil. Again, this is a warning against what comes natural. <laughs> that this is natural for us to repay evil for evil. But the idea here is that we're not to repay back evil for evil. So he moves from the, the verbal on verse 14, don't curse, that's the verbal negative, right? To now he's saying, listen, in the action should never be negative either. You should not have revenge in your actions. 
and it reminds me of a story about Jack and his little sister. Jack's mother ran into the bedroom when he, she heard him screaming and found his two-year-old sister pulling out his hair. <laughs> you can just kind of see it. You know? She gently released the little girl's grip as she comforted Jack by saying, There, there, she didn't mean it. She didn't know what she was doing. Mom was barely out of the room when the little sister started screaming. Rushing back into the bedroom, she asked Jack, What happened? She knows now. (laughs) We laugh at Jack, but you know what? Sometimes we want revenge. We like to pay back. Hey, is there anyone that you'd like to pay back? Is there anybody in your heart that you really would like to pay back, if you could, for the hurts that they gave you? See, they hurt you, and it might be, again, some of those people we mentioned a fellow worker, someone in your family, maybe it was your parents, but if you could, you would like to pay them back. This scripture says you're not supposed to retaliate. Again, this is supernatural. This is something that cannot be natural. Payback. You hit me, I'll hit you twice as hard. First Thessalonians says that make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. You know, when it comes to retaliation, we like to pay back with interest. We can't do that. Why is it wrong to pay back? Why is it wrong to pay evil for evil? Why is that wrong? Well, one, it's just wrong because it says not to. Okay, it would break the command. But let me give you some other reasons. Another reason why retaliation is wrong is because it usually escalates the problem. Proverbs 30, verse 33 says this, For as churning of the milk produces butter, you know, churned milk, you produce butter, and the twisting of the nose produces blood, (laughs) so the stirring up of anger produces strife, and that's more of an intensity there. When we try to retaliate, it escalates. Have you ever been in an an argument? It didn't start out as an argument, but by the time it was done, it was an argument. And it was because you were trying to prove a point, you were trying to get your point across. You did not have humility, you had pride, you were going to be heard. And it just escalated. Not only that, but retaliation usually leads to excessiveness. That's why like in... uh, in Exodus 21, and Jesus refers to this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now you, you might sound, you might say, well, that sounds pretty severe. You, you know, someone, you cause a person to lose your eye, and the most you can do is, I mean, you could actually cause the other person to lose their eye. Tooth for a tooth, life for a life, that's what Exodus says. But the idea is this, that was actually holding down excessiveness. See, the purpose of the law was, Whatever the crime was, it couldn't go beyond what the crime was. Now think about Islam. Think about the Quran. This is, I looked up one thing. Uh, as far as, what do they, how do they deal with stealing? This is what the Quran says. Quote, cut off from the wrist joint the right hand of the thief, male or female, as a recompense for that which they committed. A punishment by way of example from Allah. See, that's a, that's, that's a secular religion, and they go to extreme. 
When we take matters into our own hands, there's a tendency to go to extreme. When we try to retaliate, there's a tendency for excessiveness. I would say this also. If we retaliate, it's not a good witness. We are supposed to be proclaiming the Prince of Peace. (laughs) And that's why Paul says in just a few verses, you know, if it's possible, if it all depends on you, live at peace. Give place to your wrath. Let him take care of vengeance. It's not in your hands. Let him do it. Speaking of God. But you know what? If you, but this is the other thing. If you really want to repay someone back evil for evil, I mean, let's say up to this point you've heard me, but you're just saying, oh, I don't want, you don't know what that person did to me. And I, feel, I look so happy all the time, but in my heart, it's just, ugh. The thing is, retaliation and revenge creates a prison for you. Are you in prison? Are you in prison? Some of you are, are perhaps in prison and you have really high walls. In the book Love Dare, which is a little booklet that uh, after the movie Fireproof, they put out this book Love Dare. Well, on day 25, this is what he wrote. They wrote about love. <clears throat> now he's going to say love forgives. Let me say this. <coughs> I understand that if you're really going to have true forgiveness, the other person has to repent. But I do believe this, that when it comes to loving others, we don't retaliate. In other words, we give place to our offense and and vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We let God have it. So as I read this, I want you to kind of remember that, that the concept of forgiveness ultimately is when one person repents, the other grants it. But how do you hold your offenses some of you hold it very tight and you're literally like it were in a prison. Imagine, you're, imagine you find yourself in a prison-like setting. As you look around, you see a number of cells visible from where you're standing. You see people from your past incarcerated there, people who wounded you as a child. You see people who you once called friends but who wronged you at some point in your life. You might see one or both of your parents there, perhaps your brother or sister or some other family member. Even your spouse is locked in a nearby prison, trapped with all the others in the jail of your own making. This prison, you see, is a room in your own heart. This dark, drafty, depressing chamber exists inside you every day. But not far away, Jesus is standing there, extending to you a key that will release every inmate. No, you don't want any part of it. These people have hurt you too badly. They knew what they were doing, and yet they did it anyway. So you resist and turn away. You're unwilling to stay in here any longer, seeing, seeing Jesus, seeing the key in his hand, knowing that he's asking you to, what to do. It's just too much. But in trying to escape, you make a startling discovery. There is no way out. You're trapped inside with, every, with all the other captives. Your unforgiveness, your anger, your bitterness have made, have made you a prisoner as well. Like the servant in Jesus' story who was forgiven an impossible debt, you have chosen not to forgive and have been handed over to the jailers and torturers. Your freedom is now dependent on your forgiveness. Coming to this conclusion usually takes a while. We see all kinds of dangers and risks involved in forgiving others. For instance, what they did really was wrong, whether they admit it or not. They may not even be sorry about it. But forgiveness doesn't absolve anyone of blame to blame. 
It doesn't clear their record with God. It just clears you of having to worry about how to punish them. That's what forgiveness does. It just says, I'm not going to punish you. It's going to be in God's hands. When you forgive another person, you're not turning them loose. You're just turning them over to God, who can be counted on to deal with them in his ways. That's why you often hear people who have generally been forgiven say, I felt like a weight was being lifted off my shoulders. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's like a breath of fresh air rushing into your heart. The stale darkness of the prison house is flooded with the light of coolness. For the first time in in a long time, you feel at peace. You feel free. You feel free. But how do you do it? This is how you release your anger and your responsibility for judging the person to the Lord. Are you a person who are in a prison because you want to retaliate? If you could, you would. But because of that, you find yourself in the prison along with all the other offenses. You know, I was thinking about this because, again, when it comes to forgiveness, the idea is this. Ultimately, when I forgive a person, I release it and my relationship to that person is restored. Some of this that we just talked about, maybe that person hasn't confessed. Maybe that person will never confess. How do you treat the person that will never confess? Actually, I think the better concept is in 1 Peter 4, 8. It says this, Above all, have fervent love. That word fervent means stretched out love. Stretched out love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. And I think when it comes to a hurt done by a person who has not repented of that sin, it's more like you just cover it. What do you mean? Because when you cover something, you don't see it. And you just move it to God's category. Lord, they hurt me severely. And they're still hurting me even to this day. And they don't want to repent, Lord. I'm going to keep praying for them. I'm not going to be overcome by evil where I get bitter and angry and stop praying. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for them. And, and, and the possibility of forgiveness is always available to that person. But right now, love covers. And I'm not going to keep looking at it. And I'm not going to keep licking my wounds. And Lord, it's your problem, not mine. That's what you have to do with hurts and offenses. And then finally, quickly, plan to do right. Realize that it's always right to do right. Plan to do right. And it's found in that last part of verse 17. Have regard. That word regard means be careful. Be careful. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. What is he getting at? Have regard. The idea is plan. That's really what the word means. The literal meaning is this. Think it through. Take thought beforehand. Think it through beforehand. What is he getting at? He's saying, listen. Don't repay evil for evil. Know that people are going to hurt you. In fact, right now, people have hurt you. (laughs) How are you dealing with it? You know they're there. You know you need to deal with them as people. Plan it out. Plan how you're going to uh, uh, respond to them. In other words, as it pertains to difficult people, don't shoot from the hip. Don't be haphazard in your response. Paul is very practical here. He says, have regard for the good things. Plan out how you're going to respond the best way, the good way. So the principle is this, plan to live in such a way that no one can make an honest accusation against you. In fact, if they were to make an accusation against you, they would have to lie. (laughs) Because you're going to plan 
this is how I'm going to respond. These are the words I'm going to use. This is the passage I'm going to be thinking about. These are the principles that are applied because I know that there's an issue. By the way, I have an issue right here, right now, in a family member. And I need to plan out when I see them next, how am I going to respond to them? Because if I don't plan it out, you know what's going to happen? Vengeance is John Prince's, saith the Lord. Okay? So, how do you do this? Let me end with four Ps. Oh, uh, you already give me so much. Well, let me just end with four Ps. Because this is how do you do it. And it's found in 1 Peter. John 1, this is like impossible. You actually expect me to cover... You don't even know what that person has done to me. Yeah, just go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter says this. The first is peer. Peer. P-E-E-R. Peer means to look to gaze, to examine. And I want you to look at Jesus. First Peter says, He gave us an example. Verse Peter 2.21 He gave, leave, left us an example. What? He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's the example. Jesus Christ. It goes on and says this. Not only did he leave us an example, in other words, he committed himself to God, the righteous one. But then the next verse says, and that we have, that he has died, that we have died to sins, that we might live for righteousness. He died for us, and now he has given us not only that, but the power to be able to do what's right. If you look at scripture, you see, not only did Christ leave us an example, he died for us that we might live right, in other words, power. We need to peer into who Christ is, examine his life. How can you love your enemies? Well, look at Christ. The second P is this. You peer, you pray. Lord, show me where I need to change. Just show me. Show me the pride. Show me where I don't have compassion. Show me where I have arrogance. Lord, show me where I have jealousy and envy. Show me where I have retaliation. And I would just like to have retribution against that person. Pray. Third, plan, because that's what the word is. But I would say more specifically, plan it out. Lord, help me to minister to... And I, I've just filled in my own little line. I have got to minister to that person. Plan it. And then finally, do it, okay? Actually, do it, <laughs> okay? Don't just let's think about it. Oh, it'd be great. It'd be great to really love our enemies. It'd be really great to bless them. It'd be really great to weep with those who weep. No, actually, do it. Whoever God has put on your mind, actually do it. Do it this week. And start by praying for them. Lord, you know the hurts. You know all the things. But Lord, I want to be obedient. I want to have my love be without hypocrisy. I want to be a true living sacrifice for you. I want to see the supernatural power of Jesus Christ through my life and not to love someone that I love and is lovable. But Lord, you've put difficult people in my life. See, it's the difficult, but that's where you're going to see the supernatural power play out in your life. Who did he give? By the way, that difficult person is really a hidden blessing from God because you have the great opportunity to show the marvelous power of Christ in your life by loving that person. Do you see how that works? Rather than from it, running from that person, move towards that person. Why? Move towards them to show love to that person because that shows the supernatural love of Christ. Do we have a good God? We sang, do we have a great God? We have a very great God. Let's worship him. As you close your eyes.
Do you see that person again? Is there a difficult person in your life? Has the Lord revealed someone like that in your, to you? And the question is, how are you going to respond? And if you respond wrongly, I would encourage you to ask the Lord's forgiveness, ask his direction through this passage, and also ask him for strength. Lord, again, you are a great God. You have just marvelously saved us. You are transforming us to become more like Jesus Christ. We thank you for the marvelous works that you're doing in our lives. And yet, as we look at this passage, this is a very, very difficult assignment. And yet, we know that you want to see us love and love consistently, even those difficult people around us. Father, help us to call out to you and to see your strength and your mercy in our lives as we reach out to them. May that also have a transforming effect on our relationship to them. But even if they don't want to change, may be true that we want to change to see your power and your love through us to them. Guide us so that we might truly glorify you in this area. In Jesus' name, amen.